look at all this time I have. My wife shudders. I have time to tell stories I didn't think I had. <laughs> Don't get carried away. All right. In a commentary on John's Gospel, a guy by the name of Luke Johnson says, The centerpiece of Johannine writings is the fourth Gospel. A witness to Jesus so simple and powerful that its influence on Christian consciousness is unsurpassed. Another way of restating the contrast between I think how simple and yet how powerful John's gospel can be is what Ben Worthington says in his introduction to a commentary on John. Various other scholars have noted that this gospel's waters are shallow enough for a baby to wade in, yet deep enough for an elephant to drown in. <laughs> I love it. The Jesus shared in John's gospel seems at once both neighborly and dangerously radical. And here's what I mean by radical. Among the definitions of radical are included these, marked by considerable departure from the usual or traditional, and tending or disposed to make extreme changes in existing views, habits, conditions, or institutions. I think God and Jesus both fit those descriptions pretty well. And I think today's text just shows how radical they are to people both then and to us even now. Leading up to chapter 5, the context for Jesus' life has been pretty localized and somewhat private, actually. It's really at this point, the beginning of chapter 5, that not only do we begin to see both a, a deepening and a widening of Jesus' public ministry, but also now the beginnings of an increased kind of escalation of tensions that will eventually lead to his arrest and his death. Jesus' subsequent discourse about a healing that takes place in chapter 5 raises those tensions. And his comments to those who question and challenge what just happened are a good example of where his life is going and what's going to happen. One thing that's helpful to understand is that unlike the other three Gospels, John frequently uses the format of event, dialogue, and discourse. An event takes place, there is some dialogue between either Jesus or Jesus and those around him and with him, and then this opens up a need for a discourse, a comment, or a teaching. And most often the discourse is in response to some opposition that's arisen to what he's done. The text we just heard is the discourse part of this sequence. And leading into it has been a healing event in verses 1 through 9b. After this was the feast of the Jews, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has 
five roofed colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. So Jesus said, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that was on the Sabbath day. The healing itself is worthy of a series of messages. And I don't, have you done a message on this? I kind of remember. No? Nothing there? No, we sing a song. Wait for the water. That's what you Oh, uh, maybe that's the one I remember. All right. So on the Sabbath, Jesus comes to a pool by which the sick and lame would gather. They would gather there every day, believing that when the water was stirred, you would enter the water and be healed. Jesus walks into this scene and initiates a conversation with someone who had been there for 38 years, trying to be healed. But he's had no one to help him into the water. 38 years. It takes me about 45 seconds to get impatient when somebody won't let me into an intersection. 38 years. Jesus asks him if he wants to be healed. And the man says, of course, yes. Jesus tells him to get up, walk, and so he does. Now, next, after this event, ensues a dialogue. First, it's between the man healed and some of the Jewish leaders who tell the guy that it is the Sabbath and it's unlawful to be carrying his mat. The same folks who did nothing for 38 years are the ones now trying to punish him with the law because he was walking home with his mat after being healed. All right? Now, some of you probably questioned the opening video. <laughs> But that, I think, is the kind of wrestling that goes on when this guy for 38 years has been healed. He gets up, and the church stops him and says, What in the heck do you think you're doing? It feels like he's been set up by God just to get in trouble. And it starts this real wrestling with, Who is this God? I love those verses in the song. I know how humans can be bested. Fire and lust and give them all this stuff. Now you're my children, locked away forever. I got you. And I bet that's what this guy felt like. So the guy with the mat says, well, there was this guy that just healed me. He told me to pick up my mat and walk. And so, like the Keystone Cops, a search for Jesus follows. Now what eventually happens is Jesus and... The guy that's healed actually crosses paths later on again in the temple. And Jesus says, and I'll paraphrase, you can read it word for word out of the gospel there, but Jesus basically says, hey, look, you're well. This is fantastic. Now, go and sit no more. Then the guy that was healed goes and tells the Jewish leaders, looking for whoever did that healing, that it was Jesus, and he's in the temple. I think we need to make two really quick little cul-de-sac turnarounds here. A little thing about this exchange. First, Jesus is passing judgment, which will be important in just a little bit. But 
not on the man's sin. He is not linking this man's healing and this man's <coughs> sin. The sin is not connected as later verses will illuminate. Jesus is actually imploring the man for a proper spiritual response to this healing because his response will have consequences. Secondly, the man is not likely running out to the Jewish leaders to turn Jesus in. He just got healed by this guy. He is most likely doing, excitedly but probably naively, exactly what Jesus asked him to do, announcing to the leaders that it was Jesus who did this marvelous thing for him, and they should actually go and talk to him and get to know him. And he's in the temple. Easy to find. Now, back to the main question. Two problems are quickly made clear by John and Jesus and the temple leadership as they meet. The first problem isn't about what Jesus did. It seems to be about when he did it on the Sabbath, which is against the law, of course. And then verses 17 and 18 reveal a second but intertwined problem. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was making himself equal with God. So the Jewish leaders are outraged, and so outraged that we are told that they are already looking to kill him for breaking these laws. Now, in all fairness, the text that I shared this morning is actually part of a much larger response. The discourse goes on for a while. As Jesus addresses these problems head on, and what is Jesus' response and solution to these problems, which are now very publicly put right in his face? Jesus says the first solution to these problems is in the true nature of his relationship with God, which is not equality with God. Right? We know this from Philippians. Jesus did not seek equality with God to humble himself. It's not equality with God. The relationship, first and foremost, Jesus says, is this. I can't do a thing on my own. He is silently, I think, proposing a question to the leaders, basically saying, if I can heal like that, who do you say that I am? Because if they were to answer, and this happens in, in the other Gospels, right? He, he just puts the question right out there. If they were to answer, well, you're God, well, then what's the problem? So he basically says, without asking the question, I can't do anything on my own, he silently proposes the question. But instead of asking directly, he lets them know directly that he's not capable, solely in himself, of doing something like that. So no, he's not equal with God. But surely God had to be involved. Therefore, it's only possible if there is a new and radical kind of relationship with God that goes far beyond the law relationship that they know. Perhaps it's a little easier to see what Jesus has just revealed if grammatically we kind of work from the bottom up. Grammatically, the last two verses are really support and grounding for the first verse. 
So it could more simply read, God shows me everything he is doing because he loves me. Because of my experience of his love, I do whatever he's doing. Whatever God is doing, that's the only thing worth doing, and it's the only thing I desire to do. That, my friends, is a radical way to live. And that's how his disciples are and will be called to live. And the results aren't just this healing. Oh, oh no. They're even more radical and dangerous than that. Because he then shares that this radical relationship that he has with God is going to result in even greater works than what they just saw. And that they were going to marvel at this. Firstly, he says, the love in our relationship is so strong and so fundamental that not only does God give life, but in this kind of intimacy, I too am free to give life. I am free to give life. Abundant and refreshing and freely given new life is actually mine to give. Not because it's required of me, but because I love the life that God and I share and I love to give this life to others. Loving God and loving others, not the law, is the foundation of this radical relationship and the foundation for such radical results. If any of us, anyone, wants to truly marvel at God, we have to know ourselves to be truly and intimately loved by God. Truly loving God and truly loving others. How hard it is in the presence of the need of others. I was just talking about this with some other folks. To put down our desires and our agenda for other people and try to connect with what God is doing in the life of another person to know what it is he's doing and then be so in love with him to join him in that work not only in my own life but in other people's lives as well just be willing to join him out of love it's so difficult because I think it requires this kind of a relationship with him, a radical relationship, one that the leadership then, and each of us even now, I'm sure still wrestles and struggles with as we grow individually, spiritually, and together as a community. So then Jesus offers a second explanation to address the problems raised, and this time offers a very radical revelation with what was and is and always will be very radical results. Not only is he free to give life, an activity, by the way, of God that Jewish tradition understood as continuing even on the Sabbath, but grasp hold of this. God now judges no one. The truth of this claim was demonstrated in the healing when Jesus told the man, to go and sin no more. Jesus was exercising his power of judgment. Don't get me wrong. 
But it's a new exercise of judgment that is not legalistic, but rather a call to respond to the grace of God. In verse 23 is the theological knot that legalism ties. In their resolve to persecute and kill Jesus, they actually dishonor the very God they claim to defend because they haven't seen the revelation that took place right in front of them. They skipped right over the healing and went right to the healer, and now they're ready to kill him. And this helps clarify what is shared in later verses, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Here's how the NIV commentary explains this. One's life in the present is transformed from death to life when one hears the voice of Jesus. The future judgment is inaugurated by the voice of Jesus. I love that. Judgment is evoked by one's response to Jesus. Verse 29 is a reminder that one's decision here and now in the present also have future consequences. How we respond to God's grace matters hugely. It's why it's one of, if not the central theme of so many of our messages and our songs, and our worship. Our response to God's grace matters. Loving God and loving others matters. It can change the world because it's so radical. Here's my summation of Jesus' solution to the problems raised by the Jewish leaders about his healing on the Sabbath and being equal with God. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. In much more modern vernacular, I came away convinced that Jesus is saying to all of us, I, Jesus, am offering you a radical relationship with radical results, leading to a radical revelation that will form a radical and lifelong relationship. So then the only question that really remains to be answered is, what will our response be? Because it matters. In the words of the song that we heard last week, only one thing is for sure. Ain't no grave gonna hold my body down. Amen.